This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Love him or hate him, as one of the most important figures in the technology industry today, Elon Musk cannot be ignored. Ever since his days as a founder of PayPal, the Marmite leader of Tesla and SpaceX carries himself with a combination of confidence and weirdness that is myth-making. And he is now in the process of buying Twitter outright and taking it completely private. You want to have a future where you're expecting things to be better, not one where you're expecting things to be worse, he said a few years ago. Well, for millions of Twitter users, his acquisition brings them very much to the latter prediction. My guest today is here to help me navigate the waters of what may lie ahead for the social network under Musk's stewardship. Charles Arthur is a technology and science journalist with over 20 years' experience, the former technology editor for The Guardian and Independent. He is also the author of three books, the most recent, aptly named Social Warming, The Dangerous and Polarizing Effects of Social Media. Welcome to The Bunker, Charles Arthur. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. Charles, first of all, Musk still has to get together the money and overcome regulatory barriers, possible regulatory barriers. Is the acquisition a done deal, do we think, or are we putting the cart before the horse? It's not a done deal, but it's looking increasingly done as the days go by. So on Wednesday, he said that he had got $7 billion of funding, uh, including a billion dollars from Larry Ellison, the uh, billionaire owner of Oracle. So it's one of those things where the market is also showing increasing confidence that it's going to be happening because Mm. the share price is starting to creep up towards the offer price. And if there's a big gap between those two, it usually means they don't think it's going to happen. But if there's a small gap, it means that people increasingly think it is. So the signs are, if you were to ask the Magic 8 Ball, it's sort of looking promising for Musk. Now, the the second bid was expected. A lot of companies play hard to get to drive up the the offer on a second offer. But what was your gut reaction on hearing the news of the first offer, which I think came out of the blue? It's felt like one of those sort of strange things that people do when when they're when they're not really thinking but uh, i think people underestimate musk and and you have to distinguish between the musk that you see on twitter and the musk who actually does business because they're two very different people i mean it's mm. almost as if there's a sort of social media team doing sort of ridiculous sort of childish things on twitter and then a very serious team doing things with money. And he does actually have a team around him who do all the advising on money and business and transactions, which the New York Times profiled uh, earlier in the week. And they're serious people. They really think about what they're doing. So 
he can lean on them to a large extent. He can have the big idea, like, you know, let's build reusable rockets or let's, you know, electrify cars. And, and then he can pull them together and say, okay, let's, let's make this happen. Where the Twitter feed is sort of scattershot, random ideas, uh, trolling people, and doesn't necessarily match the reality. Yeah. Who owns Twitter now? Is it an entirely public ownership or does a, a, a shareholder or a coalition of shareholders actually command a controlling stake? Because I, I found that I didn't know, actually. There's a big chunk which is held by a Saudi Arabian government um, stakeholder, but uh, it's not a controlling stake as such. There are some hedge funds, uh, private equity funds who hold substantial sort of single digit chunks. And of course, there's also founders stakes. So people like Jack Dorsey have uh, a lot of control. Unlike a lot mm. of the tech companies, it doesn't have what's called a dual class share structure where, uh, so for example, Google or Facebook, Larry Page and Sergey Brin or Mark Zuckerberg have controlling interests. They have, uh, they have a minority of the shares but the votes mm. that they hold in those shares actually determine what the company does. That's not the yeah. case with Twitter. It's actually a much more equitable com uh, company in that sense. So, mm. uh, no, it, it's very much a thing where if you can get the board to suggest to shareholders they do something, then it's quite likely that they will. And the board seems very minded to take this offer at the moment. Yeah. I mean, if you were to average out the amount the extent to which people are freaking out about it, I think I'm probably below the average, if that makes sense. I'm slightly more sanguine. Uh, I think because there's <laughs> That's a lot of... It's pretty, it gets pretty extreme on Twitter, after all. You... Yeah, there, there are a lot of people catastrophizing, basically, about what might happen, and simultaneously sort of romanticizing what Twitter is now, as if it's sort of this, you know, this... Mm commonly owned utopia that has no problems now and it's suddenly being taken over by Darth Vader, effectively comparing something that may not happen to something that never was. So let's be honest, Twitter's moderation policy seems to me a pretty unclear mire as it stands. And their efforts at rooting out multiple anonymous accounts, whether of the bot or troll farm variety, have been woeful, perhaps intentionally. After all, user numbers are the name of the game. So is there a scenario in which Musk actually could make things significantly better? Oh God, there are loads of scenarios where, where he could make things better. I mean, you know, there are loads of scenarios where you could make Twitter better without having to have Musk in there. Because the fact is that Twitter has been terribly badly managed for absolutely years. It's been around mm. since 2006. And in that time, most of the, the sort of sensible things that have been added to it have actually come from ideas that users have had. So the whole idea that you address someone by putting an at in front of their name or their, their handle, that came from users, which was, it was actually borrowed from uh, Internet Relay Chat, from a, a much older uh, internet uh, communication system. And, uh, and, and the whole thing of retweets, well, that used to be that you would uh, you thought, that's a really clever tweet. I really like that. I'm going to you know, use it myself. And to credit the person, you'd put RT in capital letters, space, and then the, then the handle, and then you'd put the tweet. And sometimes you had to get a bit creative if it wouldn't fit in the 140 characters, because, you know, old school, it was really short. But those are the sorts of things. And, and after, in 2009, Jack Dorsey said, well, hey, we've been looking at this retweet thing. We've got a great idea. 
And and actually, there were a lot of people saying, no, we don't like that. We prefer doing RT, thanks. But the the extended characters, well, that was sort of because people were screenshotting things in order to get more more content into their tweets. All these sorts of things are are, are things where you wouldn't really say that Twitter had come up with a thing. And where it has, so for example, the quote tweet where uh, you put a little, um, usually acerbic line of commentary over someone else's tweet, um, well, that's that was sort of meant to give more context to tweets, and actually, what's used them is uh, is for sort of people like Piers Morgan and so on to dunk on people. So you wouldn't really say that that's uh, led to the joy, of, you know, the gaiety of nations. It's um, rather been a, sort of a, a cause of toxicity. So you know, I'm yes. not sure that that's been a great improvement. I, I have to admit, sparingly, I use it to dunk on people, um, and I know it's naughty, but it was. You're right. It started as a completely different thing about uh, uh, altering basically people's what people had said or posting it without context what tangible improvements do you think you could make to the the sort of day-to-day usability of the network for instance is verifying users a good thing or a bad thing as i understand it the idea of verifying users is not that you won't be able to tweet anonymously you will still be able to tweet anonymously. It just means that behind your user account and name, there has to be a real person that only the company will know. What do you think of that? I think it's interesting. I mean, as you said earlier, there may be a, a sort of perverse incentive on Twitter at the moment not to verify all the accounts because bot activity if they're active, then you know, they're active users, quote, and Wall Street loves the active user number. But if you're actually trying to get real people engaged, having real conversations, then maybe you do look to, to get rid of the bots, and that's something that Musk has said he would look to do. So I'm not quite as worried by the authorizing users idea, but of course, you know, there, there are people for whom that's that's a terrifying thing to, to be required to do. At the moment, Twitter does tend to require that you, when you sign up, that you verify that with a phone number. But the trouble is that that can be gamed or, or you know, you can, you can do that in large numbers, which is where the bot problem comes from. Mm-hmm. And I think possibly that's a better solution uh, the verifying through a phone number, but then you aggressively go after the bot farms and you and you try to stop those because it, it's very easy as a man and then living in the UK to say, well, I don't see why people should be authorised and you know what what the trouble is with sort of scanning their driving license or their passport. But you can see that someone you know living in Myanmar or whatever or uh, you know, some other repressive state might find that is not really uh, conducive to to using the network. And yeah. the thing about Twitter is. It does have enormous value. Everyone can see the value in it, but no one's actually found a way to extract that value. You know, if it didn't exist, you'd want to invent it. You'd want to have a global news network where you can just put out little bits of information and find people who are experts and listen to people who are experts and find out what's happening in all the corners of the world. But the thing is that somehow that's got lost. And this whole idea of connecting people and you know, getting getting information from one part of the world to another really effectively has just been lost and, and become subsumed in all the, the crazy culture wars, which to some extent I, th- I think is because of the incredible weight, the, the sort of central gravity that the US has, the way that it, it just tips everything over. Um, so possibly, you know, it's, it's partly because of the, the English language you know, weight of, of the network. 
Another of his promises has been to make the algorithm public. Is that feasible? I mean, the algorithm is essentially the most proprietary bit of a social media platform, isn't it? It's the it's the it's like Coca Cola publishing its recipe. It is a bit, yes. I mean, it, it is feasible to to put it on uh, one of the code sharing sites. GitHub is very popular with uh, developers. But there are two objections. The first is that hardly anyone would really be able to understand it because you have to understand the context in which it's running. And just seeing a big pile of code would take ages to sort through. And uh, it's in some ways, it's actually easy just to reverse engineer it, you know, just to see what happens if you, if you put a tweet up, what sort of things happen to it. And the yeah, second yeah. objection is that if someone did manage to figure it out, then uh, they'd be able to game it for spam and and so on. So his aim to get rid of the spam bots would be, to some extent, in direct contradiction with his uh, intention to to make the the algorithm open source. It's one of those things that sounds really good, but again, I, I think it's 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 an example where you know ignore the social media stuff to some extent. You know, don't don't look at what he says, look at what he does, and I, and I think that might be one of those you know, grand ideas that that actually uh, gets quietly shelved after not too Mm, long. mm. What is the worst case scenario, do you think? How could he make things significantly worse in sort of six easy steps? (laughs) Well, the, uh, the worst case scenario goes goes pretty rapidly like this. Uh, he gets rid of all the people doing content moderation and says, yeah, we'll just get that done with uh, artificial intelligence, sort of like Facebook does. Uh, second thing is he puts Donald Trump back on the platform. Third thing is he puts all the other right-wingers who've been uh, removed from the platform for inciting hate speech or for basically dumping on people, uh, you know, leaving pylons and so on. And it becomes a real hellscape of people uh, just, dunking on each other and having flame wars, culture wars, any sort of wars that you happen to happen to think about. Basically, the, the content moderation thing just goes up in a huge, huge fire. Some countries would still require them to do it. So India, for example, uh, the Modi government uh, requires Twitter to remove various tweets that are critical of the Modi government, which is uh, an interesting collision of his desire for free speech and uh, at the same time doing what's legal in the different countries. But yeah, I mean, it, it's very easy. You, you know, fire a lot of people who work on new features, don't have any new features, so that effectively the network ossifies, goes backwards to where it was in 2014, mm. 2016, when it was not in a good place because a lot of people had bad experiences. The whole conflagration, as it was, of uh, Gamergate, which was a ostensibly a war about, uh, sort of, you know, Twitter war about... Um, Ethics and games journalism, they called it. The, the people who were um, basically doing all the assaulting and uh, and uh, misogyny, which is you know the, the response from the other side. That conflagration was just uh, the kickoff, really, for a lot of what we then saw in twenty fifteen in the U.S. election run up and uh, twenty sixteen. But you know, it's it's the out of control nature of it, and it's not just the U.S. Of course, it's it's other countries as well. You see it in uh, the Philippines, you see it in Brazil, you see it in any country where mm. social media is a big factor. And of course, you know, to some extent, it was a factor in the in the Brexit referendum. I, I don't think that Twitter in any way tipped it, but the whole argument leads to so much 
friction between people. And that's why I wrote the book Social Warming, you know, is, is that it's it's so much about the way that when you have these systems which are tuned to show you content that they think you'll interact with because it'll make you, quote, engaged, which actually means mm. angry because it's the yeah. outrageous stuff that spreads, then you're, you're going to make things worse. And that's the potential, is that Twitter can easily make things worse in any society it touches down in, uh, simply by not having a clear idea about what is it we actually want to do here. Do we just want people to be hammering the keyboard? Or do we want them to be actually learning more useful things about the world, information they can use? Yeah, and and uh, it remains to be seen how that would survive contact with jurisdictions uh, with less liberal uh, free speech laws than the United States, or indeed jurisdictions in which the the question of whether Twitter is a publisher or not is still undecided or on the brink and might create quite a lot of litigation, I would think, a decision to, that anything goes on this network. He will still have investors, right? So this is not all his money. He's asking around for money. That means that although not a publicly listed company, he is still accountable to a group of people, presumably with a profit motive. Is that likely to be a constraining factor? Well, yes, there, there are various complications about what he's trying to do here. And, and there's one really interesting contradiction about it. So he's uh, taking what's called a margin loan. He's, he's pledging a whole bunch of Tesla stock to some of the banks in order to get the money that he then needs to buy Twitter. And yes, as you said, he's also got investors who are putting their money in. So they're all interested parties too. And he then has to generate a certain amount of cash in order to pay back the interest on the margin loan from the banks. Obviously, he, the people who put the money in uh, as investment, they're going to want some return as well. But uh, the Wall Street Journal said earlier in the week that he's been saying to those investors, he's been saying, listen, guys, this is a great idea because what I'm going to do, I'm going to uh, take Twitter private, I'm going to work on it for a few years, and then we're going to make it public again. Mm. Now, if you think about it, what, how, how does that make sense for the existing shareholders right now? Because yes. they're being told by the board, listen, guys, we can't get this stock price anywhere above, you know, this, this price this Elon Musk guy is offering you, you know, at, at 54.20, come on, this is a good deal because we're down in the 30s now. Well, actually, it, you know, it's around sort of $50 or so because people are thinking, yeah, this is going to happen. But it was around $80 last year. And if Musk is going to offer something to these investors, they must think they're going to get a return. So that would suggest that the price when they go for the second IPO will be above 54.20. In which case, yeah. as an existing shareholder, why would you sell now? Because Elon Musk is going to come in and make everything magical and you're going to get a higher price in the future. Yes, I, 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 read, I read your excellent blog, The Overspill. You had a, a fairly detailed explanation of how both things can't be true at the same time. The company can't be impossible to be made profitable for a management for its current management team and also be very easily capable of being turned around by musk in a in a few years and then the stock somehow shoots up the the two don't entirely add up yeah it sort of starts to look like a three-card trick 
mm. you know, that you're that, that the existing shareholders are going to be sitting there with their noses pressed against the window in a few years, saying, "Wow, look at that eighty dollar IPO! We could have had some of that." It's a, it's a, it's a really very very contradictory situation. A few days ago, he tweeted that Twitter will always be free for casual users, but maybe a slight cost for commercial government users. Um, it seems to me there is quite a wide gulf between casual and commercial government. Um, I mean, what about people like you and me, for instance, who post links to a podcast they've recorded or a piece they've written? Are we commercial users um, or casual ones? It's interesting, isn't it? I I suspect that he means uh, constituted companies, and that you'd probably have some sort of revenue check. But I sort of I, I looked at this because it uh, it intrigued me. So Twitter's revenues are about five billion dollars a year at the moment. So let's imagine that he decided, well, look, you know what? I'm going to get the governments to pay for all that revenue. I'm going to get them to replace it. So you have about 200 governments in the world. If you charge them each $2 million a month to be on Twitter, because you know, they're a government, they can afford it, over 12 months, that generates you $4.8 billion. So you've just about made it up. Or swap the numbers around. Mm. Find 2 million people or you know, 2 million Twitter accounts, so that's governments and you know, largest businesses, charge them $200 a month to be on Twitter, over 12 months, we've got your, you know, 4.8 billion. So, you know, it's sort of doable. You can play around with the numbers, you know, so you could have, find, find 4 million organizations, charge them $100 a month, and that's, you know, they can afford that, can't they? And you make it free for all the casual users. There's, there's lots of interesting possibilities there. I suspect, you know, I mean, what government is not going to want to be on Twitter? Would they maybe sort of cut back on the number of departments that they have doing it if, it, if they're being charged $200 a month? <laughs> That's interesting. Will they be able to buy a sort of a sort of multi-user um, subscription for all their departments? Well, yeah, maybe you get a sort of discount for for buying, you know, for all of them. Uh, so, so you know, you could do it. It is actually feasible there. And at the same time, you know, for everyone else, it's it's uh, it's free and possibly it'd be a lot cheaper to do than trying to manage the whole ad load, which everyone hates. And uh, which are always badly targeted. You know, this is another part of why Twitter is a bad business, um, is because the ads are so poorly targeted. <laughs> they're, they're just brand advertising. You know, compared to compared to uh, Facebook, Twitter just has no idea what people are doing, and yet people tell it. You know, they they show what they're interested in by the things that they tweet about, by the things that they look at. Twitter has all this information in its social graph, but it's just so lousy at interpreting it compared to Facebook that it that it's just never been able to make anything with it so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of um, possible avenues you could go down and again it's it's a failure of the management not to just grasp the bull by the horns here and and to start to to push in these ways to realize the power that it has you know what government is going to say well no we can't afford 200 you know, 200 pounds a month we're not going to be on Twitter get lost I mean maybe JP agrees what but would, would he be a, would his department be a big loss to anyone Yes, and again, uh, I, I would put a little question mark on whether that kind of commercial environment is also suitable for a sort of Wild West approach to moderation that he seems to be proposing, whether loads of companies would want to pay a heap of money to be in an environment that's basically a vortex of abuse. In 2020, when he was being flamed for 
well, frankly, his idiotic views on the pandemic. Um, he predicted zero cases of COVID and zero deaths from it by the end of April 2020. That didn't age well. He tweeted, please take a moment to report accounts clearly engaged in harassment. It is the only way to maintain public discourse. So does zero moderation actually mean zero moderation, do you think? Oh, no, it, it means it means um, moderation for the people I don't like and zero moderation for the people I do. I think that's the way to at least to interpret what he says on Twitter, which, again, you know, I emphasize is not necessarily what it's going to be once he yes. has his feet under the desk. It's it's always so, uh, so important to make this distinction. You know, the, the sort of noises you made about, you know, for, for example, you know, Tesla cars and stuff for, for all the people sort of uh, mouthing off on Twitter saying, well, I'm never going to buy a Tesla car, blah, 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 blah. Actually, he's made a success out of it. You know, I, I walk around my local town and it seems like every fifth car is a Tesla. I mean, maybe I just really live in too rich an area, but uh, yeah, they, they actually do have an amazing uh, brand power and, and he's used Twitter to that effect. And, you know, don't, don't discount the value of, of Twitter to him in that way either. Mm. You know, if he owns Twitter, he can't get banned from Twitter. So yeah. there's there's a lot to be said for that for him. That could be worth almost $44 billion in its own right. I, f- I find this duality you're suggesting between the, the sort of, you know, the public tweeter persona and the business person quite quite an interesting one because Tesla is actually a good example. In, in the 2022 Equality Index, Tesla was lauded as one of the most inclusive companies on diversity issues and LGBTQ plus issues with a score of 100 out of 100 for the fourth year in a row. How, I mean, how does that tally with Musk's more controversial views? Is there a sense that his bark might be worse than his bite? I think it might be easy just to think that there's a bunch of, like I say, sort of, there's a bunch of kids doing his Twitter feed. (laughs) <laughs> um, and and there's this uh, quite sharp business mind doing all the business work, and, and it maybe sort of drops it. Yeah, a bit like in Succession when they're sitting in the back of the car doing good tweet, bad tweet. Yes, 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 you know, it's it's sort of it's a bit like that, isn't it? I mean, you know, so Kendall could be a complete ass when he's doing that thing. Yeah, Kendall in Succession, who's the uh, the one yeah, yeah. uh, guy running running the big you know Murdochy company, but when it comes to business, he could also be pretty tough and know what he was about and have an idea. And and it really is that that's Elon Musk. He's Kendall in a way. Yeah, I I like that. Um, One final question. If he really cocks this up, how quickly and effectively do you think a new Twitter could make the existing one basically next year's MySpace? Oh, yeah, that, that's an. Or are we question. in a territory where where the first mover advantage is now so entrenched that there there would be basically big barriers to entry for a new company? It's not so much that there are big barriers to empty, uh, to to entry. It's more that I think Twitter has become ingrained. It's hmm. in the culture. It's uh, it's the thing that when you you're watching the news or you're watching you know sort of breakfast shows or whatever they have the twitter handle scrolling across the bottom and it will survive through that i think i mean if he really cocks it up and it turns into a hellscape then yeah people will abandon it 
But if that were to happen, then I think he would abandon it, or or else he'd say, "Yeah, screwed this up," and and uh, bring in someone else to try to uh, turn the ship around. Mm, mm. And that would be comparatively easy. You know, it'd be a question of trying to get it back to where it is today, perhaps with a bit of you know trimming the sails and just aiming more clearly for better moderation. Get rid of the spam bots. You know, get rid of the Nazis. Get rid of Trump. Uh, and, and in that respect, you could just bring it back on course quite quickly. The revenue question remains an open one. Like I say, I, I think that the, the advertising model is just not right for Twitter. Um, but there are all sorts of other ways to do it. And I, uh, I, I do think it's, it's one of those things that just can't be killed because in the age of the internet, a system that sends short messages to whoever wants to receive them is just... Uh, it's axiomatic. You, you, you. As I say, you would invent it if it didn't exist, but it does exist, so it'll continue to exist. I may be proved to be enormously wrong by this, and I have been wrong in the past, but I think on this one, I'm, I'm probably fairly safe. Okay, well, I, that I find that very comforting because I have a very good base on Twitter. So, Charles <laughs> Arthur, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Alex, thank you so much. It's been great. Remember, there's a new Bunker Pod every day, the full panel on Tuesdays, your Start the Week Bulletin on Mondays, your Culture Supplement on Saturdays, and daily interviews every other day. So don't forget to subscribe. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. The far left hates everyone, themselves included, Elon Musk mused last week. But I'm no fan of the far right either, he continued. Let's have less hate and more love. As journalist Mehdi Hassan pointed out, that means moderation. So let's see if why can't we all get along is compatible with absolute freedom of speech. As an experiment, it will be at the very least interesting. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producers were Alina Ganatra, Jacob Archbold, Yana Sofronievich, and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.